Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, recording from the home bunker. Folks, I'm very excited to welcome back to Woke AF Daily our friend, Dr. Abdul El Sayed author of Medicare for All, host of the podcast America Dissected, and a public health advocate that we've had on the show throughout the course of the pandemic. I bring Dr. El Sayed back to the show because we haven't completed or risen above, despite what the Biden administration says, COVID-19. We are still experiencing 400 deaths a day, which amount to 3,000 people dying a week from COVID-19. We haven't eradicated monkeypox. We haven't really understood what long COVID really is because we only have two and a half years of research because that's how long COVID has been around. We don't know the longer term implications of what happens to Folks trying to get disability because they're no longer able to work because there are some people who have had COVID that are struggling immensely, but we just don't talk about it. So how does President Biden saying and announcing that the pandemic is over affect people's ability to one, have empathy, but also for public health advocates to try and alert the public to the fact that while We're not experiencing a surge with COVID now as we have in the past two years. What Dr. El-Sayed will say is that if you look at the UK, which has been our canary in the coal mine, every time we're about to hit a surge, he says COVID-19 numbers are up 15% in the UK right now. And climate. We know by virtue of how climate change 
is aggressively impacting now our day-to-day lives. And we're seeing, you know, these once in a century storms every fucking year. He'll talk to us about the correlation between these public health crises and the fact that we will see another global health pandemic in our lifetime and how it ties into climate change. Folks, you know, I know that it is exhausting and at times we just want to put one of these crises, at least one of them, if not all of them behind us. But the thing is, is that we're not learning. We're not learning from anything because when we as the president of the United States announces mission accomplished and the mission is far from being fucking over. That means we've stopped learning and we've stopped educating. And that if nothing else that we've learned spells fucking danger. So what do we do? How do we move forward? How do we regain our trust and faith in institutions that were rocked by COVID-19. So this conversation coming up next with our friend, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, will lay bare, you know, frankly, folks, where we are right now with the virus, where we are headed, and how critical the upcoming midterm elections are to understanding how we build a robust health infrastructure that is prepared to meet these impending crises. The Damage Report with John Idarola is one of the most popular shows on the TYT network that serves as your daily breakdown of the genuine threats and challenges facing our country and world. These days, we're confronted with an overwhelming sea of shocking, confounding, and devastating news stories. The Damage Report is your life raft, helping you navigate the day's news and understand the damage caused by the corrupt establishment, politicians, corporations, and everything in between. Join the Damage Report's notorious fan club, The Dragon Squad, where you become part of a fantastic community of progressives. Create a fun dragon nickname that fits your personality, collaborate, and participate in fun activities like voting for, the garbage person of the week, and much more. Listen to The Damage Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Friends, I am very happy to welcome back to Woke AF. It's been way too long. Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, who you know is the host of America Dissected. He is the author of Medicare for All and Healing Politics um, and a public health doctor that makes his rounds uh, on cable news and in other spaces to educate us on what is happening in this country uh, and around the world as it pertains to public health. Welcome back. Danielle, thank you so much for having me. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to start with the obvious, um, which is a couple of weeks ago, President Biden was on 60 Minutes and he's walking around the Detroit auto show. No one is in a mask. It's the first time that the auto show is taking place in three years. And he says, the pandemic is over. Your reaction. <laughs> Good doctor, yeah. your reaction I, to that. You know, the hard part is that uh, you think about all of the folks who 
are yet in hospitals, uh, who are yet dying 400 a day about, and all the folks uh, who are so scarred by long COVID. And you have to ask whether or not it's prudent to call this over. But then the bigger question is this. The thing about a pandemic is that you can't really call it over from where you sit, kind of like a hurricane. You don't really Mm -hmm. see the edges of the storm. And it could be that the lull in the storm is the end of the storm, or it could be that it's the eye of the storm. And while we've been lucky not to have a fall uh, surge as we've had for every year of COVID so far yet, that's not to say that it's not coming. In fact, uh, you look at in the UK, which has been sort of a a harbinger of things to come in the US, their cases are up 15% over the past two weeks, which suggests that this, this still could be coming. The other aspect of this is that, you know, we think we are we have reached uh, pretty close to the most efficient um, variant of Omicron. When I say efficient, meaning the the most immune evasive combination between immune evasive and transmissible. Um, and yet, it's plausible that while we're expecting the the, the virus to zig, i.e., we are vaccinating people against the uh, BA five subvariant, that it could zag. That there could be a whole new um, line or clade of variants um, that arise. We don't know what this virus has in store. And so it's just, it, it, it's a little bit uh, frustrating to watch a, a president triumphantly declare that, that we have one mission accomplished when we actually don't really know that that's the case. And the last thing I'll say is this, is that the reason this matters, and it's not just a matter of what we say, um, is that the administration, while the president has declared the pandemic over, the administration has been making uh, an ask of Congress to fund all of uh, the, the, the COVID diagnostics mm-hmm. and treatments and vaccines that we need, should there be another, um, mm-hmm. another, another surge. And so this just undercuts that in a pretty profound way. So it's not just semantics here. It's not just you know throwing um, a lot of salt in the wounds for people with long COVID. It's actually undercutting the administration's own effort to be able to deal with the next surge such that we can get to a point where the pandemic really is over. But the hard part is you can't really declare it from inside and where we are. And um, and I worry that when people listen to the president, they'll take what he's saying um, over seriously as as con- con- Congress people of uh, the Republican Party have uh, and say, well, if the pandemic's over, why would we be funding this? Right. You know, um, the people who, who listen to Woke AF know that uh, after over two years of dodging the virus myself, um, I caught it on uh, Labor Day weekend um, mm. while I was outside at an outside family event. It wasn't even like an outside concert. It was like an outside family barbecue. Uh, and And I caught COVID. And thankfully, you know, I had very mild symptoms. Thankfully, uh, I, I did not require uh, the the antiviral treatment. I just kind of wrote it out in my apartment. It was more frustrating and annoying. But the entire time, I was thanking doctors. I was thanking science. I was thanking researchers um, for the ability to be able to ride out this thing that was inside of my body that is still inside of my body that has killed millions of people. And so, you know, one of the things that I want to ask you about is the fact that we still don't really know about the long-term implications of long COVID. And, you know, and it's something that isn't being spoken about because there are people who, like myself, have, you know, COVID finally caught up with them 
I have friends and colleagues that have had brain fog. I did not have brain fog. They are continuing past having tested negative, these symptoms casually coming back. And so how do you think um, that we should be speaking about and public health experts like yourself should be speaking about long-term COVID and what we think, you know, possibly worst case scenario, what the implications are for our workforce, right? For disability moving forward. Yeah. You raise a really important point. First off, I want to say, I'm sorry to hear that you um, had the disease and I'm also grateful that it wasn't so serious. Um, but you join uh, literally millions and millions and millions of Americans who've um, had COVID. I, I was infected back in April uh, as was my whole family. And um, th- the the consequences of that for you and me has meant that we got a bit sick for a couple of days mm-hmm. uh, and then we got over it. But we don't actually know what the long, long-term consequences of this virus are. What we do understand is that for people who are um, who are infected, some proportion upwards of 10 to 20% will develop a set of chronic symptoms that we call long COVID. But Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really understand the pathophysiology of it, why it's happening or how to treat it or what the long, long-term consequences might be. Because let's remember, right? What we call shingles before it's shingles is chickenpox. Mm-hmm. And what tends to happen is, right, that that virus we now understand goes dormant uh, in uh, a piece of your spinal cord only to come out when your immune system is weak um, and uh, follow its pathway down your neuron. Uh, mm-hmm. to a very particular part of your skin and, and, and in effect cause uh, another clinical um, infection phase. And we don't know what what is dormant in our bodies. We don't know what the long-term consequences will be. So what we really have to be planning around, um, both for people with what I'll call acute long COVID, which is kind of a weird way of thinking about it, but you know the, the long COVID that comes immediately after an infection um, uh, versus the potential for a, we'll call it longer COVID, um, that comes uh, after a phase of dormancy. We got to plan for that in terms of the very structures of our society. And let's be clear, we live in an America right now where 9% of the people don't have health insurance at all. Uh, a, uh, another uh, 15 to 20% could be liable to lose their health insurance because uh, it, it's, it's, it's rickety because it's underfunded by conservatives through Medicaid or uh, live in states where Medicaid was never expanded in the first place. And then for everyone else, uh, unless you're on Medicare, um, which Republicans never stopped trying to attack to justify Medicare Advantage, a privatized version, um, you are liable to lose your health insurance if you lose a job or if you turn 26 or if you get married or if you get divorced uh, or uh, if they decide to randomly jack up the price on you or your business such that you can't afford it even if you are eligible. And so um, we do not have a firm healthcare system in our country. Guaranteeing that for people is mission critical, particularly now considering the fact that tens of millions of people will have long COVID and tens of millions more uh, are liable potentially to have a longer COVID should that happen. And the problem is we just don't know. Nobody's ever had COVID uh, in their bodies longer than two and a half years simply because it didn't exist before two and a half years. And so we've got the plan around the potentiality and we already know that there are enough people who have chronic symptoms that can be very uh, debilitating and uh, and depleting. And um, those people deserve and need uh, our society to uh, step up and make sure that they have the care they need and Uh, that they and their families are taken care of if they can't work. You know, you would think that one of the examples of a strong, you know, democratic society would be how it takes care of 
the least among it, right? Like how, how people are cared for and the sturdiness of our systems, whether it be public health, public schools, and so on and so forth. And what we have seen is over the last couple of years, the cracks, the, the purposeful in a lot of ways, cracks in our systems have been exacerbated and have been pushed you know, past their breaking point. Part of that crack also is people's trust in public health, in the CDC, in the WHO. And so, you know, here I want to ask you is how does one both restore faith in these agencies that were tested, I think, to some extent, you know, beyond repair over the last three years um, in the fact that decisions were made and continue to be made about COVID that are really about capitalism, that are really about getting people to work back to work as quickly as possible? because. You know, I would tell you that after five days of sitting on the couch behind me, I would have never been able to go back to anybody's office, right? Like I was exhausted and I had, and again, the COVID symptoms that I had were mild. So I can't imagine people, the CDC coming out and saying, well, just slap on a mask and go into work with a mask. So I, I, I'm wondering what you think about the, the, the position that the public, public health as an industry is in and the faith and trust that people have in uh in in these systems now. You know, I'll tell you um long before covid, we have had a ruthless approach to thinking about the exchange of labor for money in America. And we um we tell people that they ought to get uh all access to all of these services including their very healthcare by working and then when they cannot work, we take these things away. And all that does is demonstrate the moral bankruptcy inherent in uh, forcing people into a set of institutions that underpay and underdeliver, and for which they're told to rely on the very basic means of a dignified life, like being able to get healthcare when you get sick. So how does it happen that, um, you know, when you get sick, you can't work and then you lose your health care to be able to treat you to get sick so you can work? I mean, it, the, the thing doesn't make sense on its own mm -mm. terms. The other part of it, though, is that these institutions generally, um, they need to fundamentally be rebuilt and, and rethought. I think, you know, we've had um, a set of public health institutions that, you know, the people who work inside of them are great people who care a lot about um, the, the, the people in our country and the people that they serve. But they've been underserved by institutions that have been robbed of the funding that they need to be able to do the work that they do. And so they've been shells of themselves for a very long time, and they just haven't been tested. And I'll be honest with you, COVID was a gnarly public health problem. You're talking about a virus that's airborne, that we didn't understand, that was very different than the most similar virus to it. We didn't have treatments. We didn't have vaccines. But monkeypox is not. Monkeypox is the 101 of public health. Uh, this is a virus that we had well characterized for decades. We had available um, vaccines. We knew how it spread. It has an extremely long latency period, um, uh, an incubation period. So you can vaccinate somebody within 10 days of an exposure and reliably prevent them from ever having symptoms at all. And we still just couldn't do it. And so what I think has happened is that, you know, the, the massive hurricane, if you will, of COVID 
mm-hmm. came and destroyed our um, very rickety public health institutions, and then we never really b- rebuilt them. And that brings us, I think, a bit back to the the statement by the president, which I found really frustrating. It wasn't the pandemic is over, but we learned a lot of lessons, and we need to rebuild our public health agencies so no- nothing like this ever happens again. And we need to make sure that we're protecting and taking care of people who still may die of the virus. And we need to make sure that we're invested in a far more stable uh, disability system so that people with long COVID are not hurt by this. Um, it was the pandemic is over. Let's move on. And um, when you say we're going to move on, what that basically does is it forecloses on all of the reconstruction, the rebuilding that needs to happen. Because, well, if you rob any, both, you know, the Republicans moved on the day before COVID started, let's be clear. And then uh-huh. if Democrats are moving on, like where's the political will to make sure that we're never here again? And um, that has to continue to be part of the conversation. And so long as we don't allow it to be part of the conversation, we're not going to do it. And the next time a very serious virus hits us, um, it could be more devastating. And the thing I want folks to understand is, yes, this was a quote unquote once in a century pandemic in an era where we have once in a century hurricanes every single Con- year. So, you know, that we're going to have another like the, the idea that we're not going to have another virus anytime soon. Um, is, uh, I think, wishful thinking. And so let's, let's make sure that our house is in order before the next one hits. Hey, I'm David Plotz of Slate's Political Gab Fest. As another election season accelerates, it can be tricky to sort through all the noise in the news. Each week on the Gab Fest, John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon, and I decipher the headlines, break down the races, and tell you what issues really matter. We do not always agree. We definitely do not always agree, but we always deliver thoughtful debate and we always have a good time. So subscribe to Slate's Political Gap Fest. New episodes every Thursday. You know, you make such a good, solid comparison to these hurricanes, to these once in a lifetime fires, to these once in a lifetime tornado seasons, um, because they're not right. They're becoming ever more frequent. And, you know, one of the things that I do want to ask you, and, and maybe you don't know, but you can hypothesize for us is, you know, the correlation between the possibility of new viruses and climate change. Right. And the fact that you have the waters that are warming, the fact that we have deforestation, the fact that, you know, we're talking about glaciers that are melting, that are letting out. This is no joke um, by Nat Geo. I saw the other day letting out bacteria in the air that hasn't been airborne in a billion years. We have no idea what its compatibility is with our current current atmosphere. So what are your thoughts about the, 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 the correlation between public health and climate change? Yeah. So there's no one way to attribute any one virus, but there's a clear mechanism that is linking uh, climate change to the emergence of more and more um, rare or uh, novel um, pathogens. You know, the, the, the fact that we had a COVID pandemic and then monkeypox sort of emerged and then we have... Um, a uh, new Ebola outbreak all at the same moment, um, I think we really ought to sort of cock our eyes at that and take a real hard look. And the mechanism is pretty clear. Um, these kinds of viruses jump into humans when uh, the animals that carry them uh, in which they are reservoirs um, or for which they are reservoirs tend to admix with humanity more commonly. So as we deforest more and more of our forests, the wildlife that was in those forests um, is coming closer to human habitats because they're losing their homes, literally. 
Um, and when that admixture happens, right, the risk that a virus uh, or a bacterium that had been resident and what we say endemic in animals that are, you know, causing like a common cold for them um, can jump into humanity where we are completely um, immune naive, meaning our immune systems have never seen these viruses and then start to spread like wildfire and cause serious illness. I mean, that's what we think happened with COVID. Um, you know, monkeypox is, is actually, it's not even a monkey disease. It's a rodent disease that, that was first discovered in monkeys uh, when it jumped into monkeys. But the more we start destroying um, animal habitats, the more likely it is that these animals are going to try and find new habitats amongst us. And the more likely it is that the, the, the pathogens that they're carrying are going to jump into us. Uh, and so there is a clear connection there. And um, that should be really worrisome for, uh, for everyone. You know, um, with a few minutes that I, I have left with you, I do want to address where we are with monkeypox. Um, and then I want to wrap up by looking at the midterms and getting your thoughts on on how public health is going to be playing into uh, the outcome of the midterm elections or, or should be if you, if you don't think that it is. But, you know, monkeypox comes onto the scene and everyone who was alive or remembers learning about the AIDS epidemic and crisis had a series of horrible flashbacks. Because once again, the United States did a bang up job in making it seem as if this uh, disease was going to stay within the LGBTQ community, particularly men who sleep with men. And by virtue of doing so, even if that is where it began, right? We know, we should know that nothing stays where it is now, right? COVID began in China. It didn't stay there, right? So what was the point, do you think, Abdul, in, in the fact of the media, public health officials sounding the alarm, not dissimilarly to the way that they did HIV AIDS, which then made it dismissible if you're like, well, I don't check that box, so this ain't about me. Yeah, I, you're raising a really important point, and the degree to which um, we have a, a really terrible uh, history in public health and medicine dismissing diseases that are either more commonly found or emerge among um, the LGBTQ community is a uh, shame. On the one hand, the institutions uh, in question had to do a far better job than they did. And their logic would have been, we need to alert people about what they can do themselves. But when part of that is to provide a vaccine and part of what you're asking them to do is to get vaccinated, when you don't have enough vaccine because mm -hmm. you delayed getting the vaccine manufacturing facility uh, authorized and you allowed your strategic stockpile to go bad, well, that's on you, right? And um, I will say that you know we we went from having a, a daily high of about 500 cases, new cases a day, to about 200 new cases a day. Now, the doubling time, meaning the number of the amount of time it takes for the number of cases to double, went from eight days to 25 days. So when you reduce the doubling times, that's a good thing. That's on the on the back of members of the community um, doing what they needed to do to protect themselves and. The public health institutions that should have been uh, on it from the jump, um, doing the bare minimum uh, to facilitate that. And so, you know, it is deeply, deeply frustrating. And then the other part of this is that as we think about 
raising alarm and, and trying to empower people with information that they can use, there has to be a rejoinder to that conversation, kind of like what we talked about when you declare the pandemic over, which is this is a disease that is most common or more likely to affect a particular profile. And also it is a disease mm -hmm. that can jump quickly and all of us have to do what we can uh, to make sure that um, the communities that are affected have the resources that they need uh, to be protected. And that's on all of us. But, you know, when you just say the first part, meaning this is most common among men who right. have sex with men, without saying the second part, that this is a disease that can affect anybody. There's no reason why um, pathologically this, this cannot jump and will not jump. Um, then uh, what happens is you create an implicit um, opportunity to dismiss this, given the, the marginalization of the LGBTQ community in America. And so I really appreciate you raising that point. And, um, you know, it, it's, it is, it's, it's sad that in 2022, um, we are seeing the same echoes of HIV. And uh, it just says that a lot of the implicit marginalization, the, the structural marginalization that exists is way bigger um, uh, and, and exists in a subterranean way that we have to root out um, and that, that we still have a lot more work to do. So last question um, for you, my friend, is around midterms. We are making the long, slow death march, as I will say, <laughs> um, to, to, to the midterms. And I, and I want to get your thoughts on how you think, one, that public health is playing a part uh, in getting people to the polls. Is it top of mind? And two, um, how you would be messaging public health as we are making this march to midterms, how it can be done better? I worry that, um, that Democrats are not pressing their advantage right now, that they see or Republicans see the pandemic as something they can hang on Democrats, despite the fact that it was under a Republican president uh, that this pandemic emerged, that the early days where we could have contained it, uh, we failed. Um, and that uh, the failure to think about supply chains uh, in general allowed the pandemic to turn into the economic situation that we're in right now. And I think Democrats, um, we don't do ourselves any favors by running away from it, declaring the pandemic over and pretending that, that it's behind us. What we need to do is um, we need to make sure that we're telling the story of what happened, that under a Republican president under which our government was treated as a political hobby horse for that president, that president ignored the fundamentals of public health. He told people to inject bleach. He failed to, um, to, to protect people from the pandemic itself. Uh, ultimately, more than a million Americans died. And he also failed to protect our economy. Since taking office, Joe Biden has had to clean up that mess, whether it was making sure that we got shots in arms uh, or making sure that we uh, secured supply chains, everything from the, the Long Beach ports to uh, bringing so much of the supply chains that we have relied on back home uh, in the forms of everything from chips to, um, you know, to, to basic masks. Uh, and that is what, what Democrats have had to do because of the failure of Republicans on this issue. Um, and all that we have done, don't forget, was to save yet more lives that would have died had that, mm -hmm. that failed leadership continued. Um, and, um, and so I think we have to make sure that we tell that story and we own that story. And I think it's lazy for us to sort of try and pivot off the pandemic as if it was over, because that could come back to bite us in the ass. I mean, if we have, you can imagine uh, if, if we have another similar kind of surge to Omicron in the next month, 
what that could mean um, in the midterms. So we have to be telling the story that is true, which is Republicans failed us. We are still living in the in the consequences of that. Um, and 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 Democrats have done everything we can uh, to solve it. Would I have loved to see more? Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. Um, I would have loved to see more. Uh, and yet, you know, as you and I both know, um, mm-hmm. democracy is uh, at an existential survival point. And, um, you know, I worry a lot given where Republicans are going with this. It, what I'm reading in the tea leaves is, you know, if you still have Donald Trump campaigning for you statewide in places like Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, what you've basically said is, I don't actually care if I win an election, right? Because I don't believe democracy matters all that much. All I'm going to do is rile up my base so that when we inevitably lose, we can point at the whole apparatus and say, this doesn't actually, uh, this, this system doesn't actually work because it's been giving too many rights to people who don't look like you, dear base. Uh, and therefore, um, we ought to deconstruct this thing. That's where I think they're headed. And that's a really, really dangerous endpoint. I'm terrified and I remain terrified bringing the alarm on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, thank you so much for making the time to join us on Woke AF. Don't be a stranger. Don't let too much time pass before you come back and join us again. We appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate you um, you constantly talking up on these issues and uh, look forward to joining you next time too. That is it for me today, dear friends on Woke AF. As always, Power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.